0: Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God.
1: Thanks, Nikki. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for visiting today. If it's your first time, as Spence said, we're glad to have you. Uh, Always glad to have visitors, uh, but welcome to all of you as well. who call Hiawatha home uh, and uh, to our last two-service Sunday for like two and a half months. So um, 10 a.m. next week. Write that down. Don't forget. Um, But we are in the Gospel of John right now and have been for a while, so we're preaching through the whole book. We have about a year left or so. Um, And we are in uh, John chapter 8 today, 39 to 47, as you just heard Nikki read. Um, Basically a part two to last week, so you may have kind of sensed that when Uh, Verse 39 started, it was just kind of right sort of um, mid-dialogue, and that's because it was. Uh, But last week Jesus said, uh, all who commit a sin are a slave to sin. Uh, Sort of one of the, kind of the big things Jesus says actually in the whole of the gospel. Semi-famous, depends on your uh, past with the Bible or if you're privy to to John or not, but it's a a big statement that is very stage-setting, and Spence talked about that last week. We'll talk more about it today. But then he adds, if the Son sets you free... You will be free indeed. If the Son of God, speaking of himself, if the Son sets you free, then you'll truly be free. You'll be free indeed. Uh, so again, very important passage of John's Gospel for a number of reasons, one of which is that it makes it all the more clear who the main antagonist is in the story and in our story, uh, namely Sin and how Jesus presents himself as the solution to the problem. So not so much a way of living uh, or another uh, thing of any kind uh, personified, but himself. He is the, the solution. If the Sun sets you free, then you will truly be free. So again, implication is nothing else can. Uh, part of the pushback from the, from the Jews, though at least here in, in this context, is we are Abraham's children. We've never been enslaved to anyone. And this is also a helpful statement because it reminds us how Misguided there and sometimes our understanding is of what our true problem is in life. Uh, this is the simple equivalent of someone saying, I'm not a bad person, when sin is all around them and in them all the time. It's like the, you know, when we're blind to those things. Uh, or someone thinking that a politician or a virus or a worldview or a neighbor or a coworker or even a fellow church member is their true enemy. Uh, Jesus stops all of that thinking right in its tracks with his teaching in, in John 8 and kind of builds uh, off of it. So in today's passage, uh, again, kind of picks right up where we were last week, mid-dialogue, and a few things stand out today that I want to walk us through, uh, the biggest of which is the theme of fatherhood, which I did not plan for this being Father's Day, but, uh, but here we are. I actually laid this whole sermon series out about a year ago. It's so kind of cool that this worked out. Uh, so we'll start there looking in part at this shocking statement of Jesus saying, that the devil is your father, which is not the warmest and fuzziest of Father's Day sermon titles, but there you go. Um, So let's just start, though, with this um, broader idea of how uh, true fatherhood is spiritual and kind of what that means. And I would add that true posterity and genealogy is spiritual, too. We'll get to that in a minute. But The people here are thinking very physically versus spiritually in regards to a lot of stuff. We talked about uh, slavery and the enemy issue before and spent it last week. Uh, In fact, it's actually kind of why um, the law was given in the Old Testament in part was to exemplify the idea that Israel was still enslaved to something inside them. So they were enslaved physically for 400 years in Egypt. God sends Moses to be a deliverer figure. They come out, they say we're free. God gives the law that they can't keep uh, to show that actually the true Egypt is in here. Uh, the true enslavement's inside of you. Uh, it, it, the, the true problem is that you're not where God is, that you're distanced from him, and you can't fix that chasm. And the law helped exemplify that. Romans 5.20 in the New Testament says, God gave commandments to make sin worse. To make it's, it, it's, it's a bigger chasm, or a bigger too tall of a mountain to climb. And so that's kind of one reason why this happened. And so in one sense, the Jews have a misunderstanding of the purpose of the law as well, uh, that's been a big thing in the Gospel of John. Uh, if you're just joining haven't heard us talk about that yet, we'll continue to do that. Um, but that aside, they're also thinking overly physically about what fatherhood is as well. And specifically, what it means to be a child of Abraham. Okay, so really quick crash course in Abraham. Uh, he is, uh, was the first patriarch In the earlier chapters of the Bible, Genesis 12, so the 12th chapter of the whole Bible is where we first meet him, but uh, he is the first patriarch of the faith, and it's the one that God called out of his own house of idolatry into this new land. Uh, So he moves him to a new place to covenant with him and to be with him and to make promises to him, Uh, ultimately that God would bless Abraham's descendants out of a world of pain and curse and death. So it's a really monumental thing that God would even speak to human beings after rebelling against him, but that he speaks in this kind of gracious way is meant to be incredibly shocking, but that he actually gives good news. Uh, in fact, the New Testament calls this ex- early exchange between God and Abraham the gospel beforehand. I think that's Romans 4, but I can't remember. Uh, but the gospel beforehand. So early gl- the early glimpse and sense of Jesus Christ is there in the early pages of Genesis. So it's foggy there, much more clear when Jesus comes and takes on flesh and starts talking in some of these complementary terms. Now on this side of the cross, we know uh, what he was getting at. So Abraham is a key figure in the Bible, uh, a type of what we later call a redeemed sinner, where God calls us in a state of sin, pulls us out uh, to be with him and to make promises to us and save us and covenant with us. Um, But the most important attribute of Abraham then, kind of related to that, uh, theologically, is that he is a man of faith. He believed God, and God counted his faith as righteousness. The Lord counted him as righteous or pure or justified or made right with God because he simply trusted in God. That was it. And uh, a lot of you know this, but in the New Testament, the apostles make a big deal out of this, Broader idea of this specific verse, actually, that this is what faith is, and this is how it's not about you, not about us, uh, distinct from what we do, but it's this line, this genealogical and theological line of faith, of simple trust in God alone uh, for the forgiveness of our sins. That, in, in kind of a familial way, this is setting things in motion to be a line of blessing that we should expect renewal to come from. Ultimately, from Abraham's offspring, which would eventually be Jesus Christ himself. Okay, so I'm leaving out some, a lot there, actually. There's a lot more to that, some more nuance. That's kind of like a quick crash course on the, the backdrop here to John 8 and to Abraham. But in John 8, for the Jews then, they're, they're thinking that God's promise has to do with bloodline and, and ethnicity. When they say we're children of Abraham, they mean we're descendants of Abraham, like physically, by, by blood, by birth, which they are. But by that they mean, we're the chosen race. We're we're good uh, based on that. God has freed us before. We're not enslaved to anybody. He'll free us again even if we we get in a bad spot. But it was never meant to be about bloodline. That's kind of what we're starting to get a sense for here when Jesus starkly says, actually, the fact that you're a descendant of Abraham means nothing. And I'll talk about what it means here in a second. But they, they thought it was about that. And... Uh, Instead, it was about a spiritual understanding of who the the children of Abraham are. So the physical ethnic Jewish people were just a picture then of what would be the coming renewal, a glimpse of the future church, but not the reality itself. The reality had to do with something much deeper, something that would be for all people, whether Jew or non-Jew. And so in light of that, we read in places in the book of Romans like this, where it says in Romans 2.29, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. So, it's, so, so Paul's saying, you're not a Jew based on your ethnicity, you're a Jew based on something in the heart. To be a true Israelite, a true person of God, in other words, has something more to do with something in here, uh, inward, than it does by your skin or your blood or your, um, you know, your, your genealogy, your ancestry. Or in Romans 4.12, then, which gets more clear a couple chapters later, Where it says, and he then is the father of those who follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. And so so this is the key, the mention of faith there. When Jesus when Jesus says up at the top there in verse thirty-nine in today's passage, if you were a child of Abraham, you'd be doing the works he did. Well, when he says works, he's talking about Abraham's faith. The work of Abraham is that he was a man of faith. That's what he means. That's what Paul means here as well. To be a child of Abraham is to have faith in God, faith in him alone to save you and nothing else. So it means then that a child of God uh, genealogically resembles Abraham's faith attribute and has simple trust in God to renew and reconcile and and resurrect. That is like, uh, if, if you're brand new to the Bible, that is like, I don't want to say like the whole New Testament when I say that, kind of post-cross, but it is such a significant part of the New Testament letters that to understand that, you understand so much that Abraham had faith and his line then would be people of faith or by by that he means belief in and trust in God for the forgiveness of, of their sins and one who would decidedly raise the dead. So with that, though, we also learn that it comes, faith comes with a decided, intentional, even outspoken distrust in the self to do any of those things ever. Uh, faith and work are opposites, like grace and law. You can't serve two masters, the Bible says elsewhere. You can't trust in yourself and God at the same time. You have to pick one. All right, so then in verse 44, which uh, I'll paraphrase here, Jesus kind of just gets to his point. He drives it home. He says, but you don't have faith. You're saying you're the ch- you're children of Abraham, but you don't have faith. And so you're not. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. You don't have his faith attribute. You're not in that spiritual, genealogical line of posterity. And so uh, you're like your father the devil, you you know, he, he was a murderer and a liar from from the beginning. And then he kind of goes on and explains that, and so will we. But the question then, I think, becomes, uh, how is the devil a murderer and a liar? Because um, for some of you, that might feel like, oh, that makes sense that he would go, go this way uh, in this context. But for others, you might be thinking, well, why is he bringing that up here? And how is that, you know kind of exemplify the other line? If one line is God and Abraham and faith and Jesus, um, why is he talking about these very specific attributes of uh, being a murderer and and a liar on on this side of things, other than it just being a bad, you know, bad things to do, which is, I guess, part of it, and sin? Um, So two things to that in response to this question. One is the simple thing that the devil wants to kill. He wants to kill Jesus. He wants to kill you. He wants to kill me. Uh, he's the opposite of life and the opposite of truth, which is why uh, he is called a liar and why Jesus is called the, the truth and the life in places like John 14, 6. Jesus and the devil are maybe obviously, but uh, still worthy of saying, pitted against each other. They're not the same. They're, they're the opposites. Uh, and so the devil is a murderer and a liar because he lies about, he, he spews false doctrine, lies about God and what he's like. Lies about what it means to be saved. Lies about what you need to do in order to be saved. And through that, he murders us uh, spiritually. Um, in fact, already has. That's a sobering truth, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll come back to that. But again, you, kinda see, you can kind of see here how Jesus is using genealogical resemblance to make a theological point. Sons and daughters are like their fathers. In some ways. And the Jews here are not at all like Abraham because they don't have faith, but they are a little bit like the devil because they have hate and murderous intent. Uh, The apple hasn't fallen too far from the proverbial tree, basically, is is what he's saying when it comes to humanity and the devil. Okay, the the second angle on this is to dig a little bit deeper and uh, ask this question if my clicker will work but it's not I'm going to leave you hanging alright we'll close there for tonight maybe just ran out of batteries right there that's weird yeah would you mind do you have the other one, Sonia? otherwise we'll just probably be here for a long time that's weird I've never actually ran out in the middle of a sermon like that thank you mm-hmm. alright let's try it nope maybe it's PowerPoint did it freeze you want to check that out Peter or Sonia or Shelly did it freeze it froze okay um, I'll just keep going. If you can bring it back up, that's, that's great. But all right. The second thing is, uh, is to ask what's behind murder and why are murder and faith, so it's kind of alluding to this, but why are murder and faith, you know, contrasted here other than there's just one's a good thing we might say, one's, uh, one's a, um, a bad thing. Well, it helps, I think, to go back to the um, first murder in the Bible, which is four chapters in, So it kind of starts off uh, not so great, right, after creation. But um, when Cain murders his brother, Abel, and at the core of that murder, which has the devil's fingerprints all over it, especially in context of Genesis 3, if you know that, the story of the fall, at the core of that murder is pride, contempt, and Cain thinking he was better than his brother. That's really key. Remember, God accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's because Cain's was from the works of his hands which is the opposite of faith. Uh, so the devil's whispers then to us, um, the reason why we're looking at this this way is to say that the devil's whispers to us aren't just murder that person, but you're better than that person. Because believing that you're better than someone, having contempt for someone, is, that's what leads to murderous intent. Whether we actually murder them or not, um, hate is what's behind it. And having contempt for people that we feel just don't have the right to live. Uh, that's really what's behind it. That's what that, that was what's behind the first murder ever was someone thinking that he was better than, uh, than someone else, uh, someone who lived by the works of his hands, who thought that he was something before God when he was nothing. Uh, that's a quote from Galatians. Um, and Abel was different. And so, uh, but anyway, we don't, we're not going to preach that passage today, but that's kind of a little crash course there. But again, the devil's whispers then aren't just like do a bad thing. It's, it's, it might come uh, in, in this uh, side door kind of way, which in this case is you're, you're better than that person. But this, this then is important to understand because this is how the devil and how murder is the opposite of faith and from a different line, theological line, or genealogical theological line than that of Abraham. Uh, God's family is full of faith-filled individuals uh, in other words, who tend to not think of themselves better than others because they're saved by grace, not by anything they've ever done. They have more of a sobering view of, of, of the self. But the devil's family is full of work-centered, proud individuals who trust in themselves and who look down on, on others. And when I write this this way, you know, in one sense I, I have this feeling of, maybe that's a little bit almost kind of overly simplistic and a bit binary because even if you're a Christian here today, though you are free in Christ and you are part of God's family, maybe you can still hear whispers of your old, devilly life in your present day actions. And, you know, kind of like uh, Frodo in Lord of the Rings felt the lingering sting from the witch king's knife even after the war was won all the way up to uh, his point of death or leaving Middle Earth. You know, some, the point of that is uh, some things don't totally heal in this life. It takes death To fully free us. The second theme I want to talk with you guys about is a question, a big question: Uh, What does it mean to be good? Uh, So, kind of from verse forty-four, but we'll we'll look in context. You know, and and if I, um, you know, if I were to ask that question, like I am, I guess. uh, But as I as I preach this or someone teaches this, you know, I could say, well, in John eight, I guess, uh, you know, don't be like the devil would be one thing. Uh, Don't murder people and, you know, and then don't lie, right? And so you might hear that and say, well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. You know, check. Um, What else you got, right? Uh, But most of you probably knew that coming in here that those things are not, um, you know, good things if you're a Christian especially. Um, But maybe you didn't know that murder actually originates in the heart, all of our hearts. Jesus teaches this in the Sermon on the Mount that, um, again, there's, there's a deeper thing going on than just the outward actions that God sees with his eyes, that he knows about with his mind. Um, and, that, and, and that we've already done it, really, in the heart, just by hating, hating someone. We've already been a murderer. Um, Jesus has that kind of uh, kind of very uh, lovely and stark statement in is it Matthew 5 or 6, where he says, even if you've hated somebody, you've, you're just as liable to someone who's actually murdered someone if you've hated someone. There's, like, there, there's a similarity there in terms of like liability before God and expectation of future judgment. It, it's this, for people who haven't murdered and think they're kind of good because of that, and God grades on a curve, that, that, that again is another way that Jesus is flying in the face of that religious way of thinking. He's, he's coming back at it uh, with the truth, not a lie. Those are lies to think that way, but Jesus comes at it with, with the truth, um, and part of the truth is who we are and what, is, what does it mean to be good? What's it mean to be evil? So also notice, Jesus says, you are murderers, not don't murder. You see the difference? It doesn't say like, okay, here's, it's lesson time, kids. Let's get in a circle and pass the talking ball here. You know, he's saying, actually, no, you guys are, This isn't isn't a lesson. Like, I'm telling you what's already true about you. You you are murderers. It's the same with their identity as children of the devil. He's not saying, don't be a child of the devil. Don't act like a child of the devil. He's saying, you are. You already are. And so then we're kind of left, when we kind of understand the problem on those terms, we're left with, well, then what? You see, morality is overly simplistic because morality can't take care of your past. It can only deal with your future at best. But what about the, time, the 10,000 times you've lied? What about those? Well, morality, it's overly simplistic, and it leaves you wanting. It leaves you, unless you can time travel, I guess. Um, but, but even then, you know, it's in a state of um, distance from God and failure to uh, comply and keep and obey uh, the, the commandments of God. So there are bigger questions here about the true nature of good and evil that go deeper than the surface. It's not as simple as if you do good, you're good. So one question then that John 8 elicits, I think, is um, how can good people still be called children of the devil? Because that's who he's talking to. Uh, these, the people in context here, he's, you know, he's not going down to the, the penitentiary, the prison, and you know, walking down death row or something and talking to these people. These are people, this is the town square. He's talking to religious rulers. He's talking to people that, Again, think they're children of Abraham. So these are people that have families, they, they volunteer in their communities probably, they read their Bibles, uh, if they have kids, they, lo- they love their kids, they claim to love God. These are the people that Jesus is saying, you are spawn of Satan. <laughs> you know, like those are the people. Um, and so the question then is, well, how can that be? That doesn't make any sense. How can good people, at least as we understand goodness in a, in a broader sense, how can they have uh, that, that title? And the answer is to that, the only answer that really kind of makes sense is because goodness has little to do with their works, at least at the core, but more so their spiritual identities, what they're born into as children of the devil. This is a big one. Their lack of faith and their propensity to trust in the self and to look down on others. Um, there's a lot of things we might classify as demonic. Like if I, I told you guys, just write down a, write a paragraph, write a list of five things you think of when you think of something demonic. Um, maybe, chances are, you wouldn't put lack of faith in there. Or chances are you might not put trust in the self, a self-idolatry, belief that you're a good person. But that is the core of demonic way of thinking. That, that is how the, devil, that's how the devil wants you to think. And how he got Adam and Eve to think in the very beginning. Remember when he talked to them? He's like, actually, God meant this. And if you do this, you can be like God. You don't, you don't need him anymore. You guys are capable. You're sufficient. You know? Don't let anyone tell you that you need to do this or that or that you need him. And so ever since, we, we've heard the lie. We've bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. And again, now Jesus comes in with, uh, with the truth. Same question, but from the other side. Uh, is to ask this question: How can evil people be Christians? Right. This is like, if, if you're a Christian, this might perk you up even more because you're like, well, yeah, you know, raising my hand right, uh, right away here. But how can evil people be Christians? People who, from Romans 7:18, this is the Apostle Paul speaking as a Christian, I have nothing good inside of me. It's a Christian saying that. Do you guys think this way? As a Christian, I have nothing good uh, inside of me," he says. "That is my flesh, which means his body, his soul, his mind. Everything that he could say is of him. There, there's. This is not pre-Christian Paul, like ruminating here about his life before he he converted. This is like his struggle with the, the question of what it means to be good, and he's clearly coming at it from. Well, it's not me. I'm not good. Then the question, of course, is, is who is, right? But, but the answer to this tension, though, before we get there, is the only way to resolve this tension is with grace. That we're saved not by what we do or have done, but by what God has done for us in Christ. And that the outcome of our faith is not becoming a better version of ourselves, but union with Christ. So that it can be said, there's still nothing good in me except Jesus. He's in there and he's never leaving. The Bible calls this very doctrine uh, in Ephesians 5 a mystery. Uh, it kind of almost kind of raises the, you know, the white flag a bit and surrenders in terms of like, you know, language that we can adequately give to this. You know, almost like the Trinity. We can't fully grasp that. But it says this is one of the most important things you guys to understand about theology, Christian theology, is this idea that you are one flesh or one spirit with Jesus Christ, in in the the same vein as a man and a woman are when they get married and they become one flesh. The Bible links those two ideas. The closest thing we have in this life, as a metaphor, is a marriage between a man and a woman and how they they become one flesh before God. The, The idea is we are raised with Christ when we believe, and so it's he who does the good within us, not us. And so we're called to keep in step with that idea. So do you see how, like, and I don't know if this is a freeing thing for you. I hope it is. It's very freeing for me. But how freeing this is to understand this um, and how well it maybe explains our day-to-day spirituality as believers. You know, it explains why, in a lot of ways, you guys, if you're Christians, you probably aren't that different from before when you were a Christian. I know I'm not. I've been a Christian a long time, but in a lot of ways, I struggle with the same old stuff, same old trip-ups, same old thoughts, same old this and that. In a lot of ways, I am different too. Transformation's a real thing by the Spirit, but in a lot of ways, I'm the same. And to understand this idea that, you know, to understand that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh, can bring a level of angst, but also freedom, knowing that salvation doesn't come from me fixing all my problems. But instead, by running to Jesus over and over again to be saved and to be made one with him by faith, and by resting in our identity as his child. To put it differently, Christianity is not about you becoming good. See, that idea is completely precluded and erased by the idea of union with Christ, and by the idea of Romans seven eighteen and how we think about ourselves. Now, what's true about us? What, you know, are, are we alive or not? Uh, you know, are we good or not? What happens after we believe? What is God expecting? These are massive questions to ask about our lives as Christians. But Christianity is not about you becoming good, but about good, capital G, goodness, that exists outside of you, somehow wedding himself to you. So you remain distinct, yet one, like a man and woman do when they marry. Right? If, if you're married, this is what's true about you. Right? You're distinct, and yet you're one flesh. It's like you, you have a, a oneness identity, and yet you're individuals. It's the same with with Jesus. It's like he's one with us. We're we're not Jesus, and yet we're like one flesh somehow, and that's sufficient. That's all you need. There's no more barrier between you and Jesus. What are you going to add to that? What can you do that could possibly make that more beautiful and more of a reality? There's grace in that. Finally, I'll just say it this way. Um, So Christians then should think this way and talk this way. I, I am not good but goodness himself dwells in me. I'm not good, but goodness himself dwells in me. And we live in that tension. We live in the difficulty of fully understanding that, but we believe it. And we struggle, but we rest. We have the angst, but we have the freedom. And like Paul in Romans 7, it just constitutes our life uh, in this life until we die and are raised in perfection with him. All right, last section here is, um, this is kind of where all this is heading, is we need a miracle. Uh, you know, if, if all these things are true, all these things about us and about reality, and it's a kind of a big deal to, to hear that the devil is your dad, uh, your father is Satan. Um, it, you know, I don't know if that sounds out of left field for you guys or not, but it's like as Christians, if you're a Christian, that's not true anymore. Well, of course, we'll talk about that. But that's all a part of our stories, if you're a Christian or not. That's a part of our past, at least, if not our present. To hear that, I mean, Jesus isn't just saying, yeah, you guys have had a bad day. You've gotten into the habit of sinning a little bit. Let me just kind of course correct you five degrees. This is not how Jesus talks, right? I mean, can we agree that saying that you're a spawn of Satan is kind of like the worst thing you can say to someone? I think it is. But... So the point is like if that's all like part of what Jesus is teaching in love, he's not insulting, he's just speaking the truth, not a lie. The devil wants you to think that's not true. The devil wants you to think that you're kind of a good person. Try your best. You know? You're a functional child of Abraham. You know, you're you're privileged, you're this or that. And Jesus is saying it's a lie. And he wants he wants to kill you through that. Let me help you with with the truth. So The passage then actually kind of ends on a bit of a downer in verse 47, but looks ahead to an upper. It says, and I'll read the paraphrase here, it says, You can only be of God if you hear the words of God and believe. But you can't hear the words of God because you are not of God. So do you guys hear that kind of like uh, impossible circular argument there? It's like you need to hear God's words in order to believe to be saved, but you're deaf, you can't hear anything. And so you can't hear his words, which means you can't believe, which means you can't be saved. And it kind of keeps going around and around and, and around. Uh, it's, it's like saying, uh, you can only be saved if you climb Mount Everest, but you have no arms and legs, so get going. You know that's, It's the same thing. It's a hopelessly circular argument. What we need is someone to break into the circle and interrupt it and to fix a part of that, most notably our deafness. And the reality is we're staring right at him here in this passage. The one who physically opens deaf ears in his ministry and who especially opens spiritually deaf ears. So we can actually hear God call out to us in our tombs and wake up from that state of being a rotting corpse spiritually and walk out into new life forever. And the one who frees us from the tyrannical rule of the one demonic father into the loving arms of another father, our heavenly father, by way of adoption. And the twist in this passage is that we know when Jesus says the devil's a murderer and a liar, um, the ultimate point to that, tying it to himself saying that the Jews are seeking to kill him, is to say that the devil will murder Jesus eventually. Um, most of you probably know it's how the story ends. It doesn't end, but how it, uh, the climax of it is Jesus is planning this. I think in the the subtext of what he's saying here, and certainly is more clearly elsewhere, is Jesus saying, "I am intending the devil to murder me. I want that to happen." He thinks he has power over me. The Jews think they have power over me, as if a Roman governor actually has. It. This is why Jesus says, right at his uh, at his arrest, "Like you have no power over me except." that which is given from heaven. Just to kind of make that clear. This is all happening because it's intended to happen. I'm intending it, he's saying, planning on it even, so that I can save the world from sin. Basically, Jesus is saying, I'm I'm taking all the evil that you're going to throw at me and I'm going to use that evil. I'm going to drink every last drop of that evil, shaking out the cup. I'm going to drink it on the cross and use it to save you from evil. It, It is the... The, the, the twists of twists. It's the scandal of scandals. Uh, it's, but it's the most beautiful story ever that God can't be tricked. You know, right, right when we think God's doing one thing, he shows us that he's doing something else. We think he's lost, but he uses the lost to win. Um, so that's the twist here and the ultimate point. The devil will and the, and the Jewish people will. We will all ultimately in the spirit of, of the, what the Jews are doing to Jesus because we, we can't bear him. And the truth, we, we will murder Jesus. And, and that's the only thing, his death on a cross is the only thing that will open our ears to God's voice and that will supplant us from the devil's household into a new one with God as our father. Or to quote, be of God. To be of God is to be saved. To be of God is to be adopted by him. To be of God is to look at the cross and have faith, to be, a, to be a child of Abraham is to have faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, to use a human analogy, a payment has to be made for an adoption. Some of you guys have adopted kids, I'm guessing, or you know someone who has. In that scenario, it costs something, right? Like, it costs a lot of money, actually, sometimes. And even if it's not money all the time, it's heartache, it's waiting, it's uh, the, the trial and struggle uh, there's costs that come with adopting, not for the adoptee who's just waiting, but for the adopter. And in the, same, the same is true for God. In order to adopt you, God had to make a payment. He had to suffer. Free for you and me, we're just the recipients. But it, co- it cost God everything, everything He had, his very, his very son's life. His beloved son, who was sent into the world, who he schemed with to save the world, who he sent with a mission, and Jesus has his eyes set on Jerusalem right here. He's focused. He knows his purpose. It says in this passage, he hears the words of God himself. He can hear. Jesus isn't deaf. He can hear what God wants him to do, and he will never, ever, ever, ever veer from that path. He will go willingly in love in order to make that adoption payment for us to switch families. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Um, and just for an interpretational help, whenever you see the word through Jesus uh, in the New Testament, that means through his death. There is no through apart from the cross in Christian theology. There is no through apart from Calvary, apart from Golgotha, apart from that hill Jesus died on in Christian theology, period. Uh, So in that vein, like as, you know, adoptees like us who are Christians, or if you're not yet a prospective adoptee, there's nothing we can do except wait. Just like there's nothing we can do to earn a place in God's family except wait. That's why the Bible says, wait on the Lord. And never once in the Bible does the Bible say God is waiting on you. Ever. Isn't that freeing? God is never waiting for you to do anything. He's never waiting for you to figure it out. He's not way up there somewhere, looking down, wondering if maybe, just maybe, we'll say the right thing or figure him out. He is on the move. He is doing something. He is, to quote John 5, working again. And creating again. And the Bible says, "Wait on him to save you. Don't start working to save yourself and to turn his head. It'll never work. The whole Bible' is set up to contrast those two lines. Are you saved by you or by God? Law or grace? By striving to work or by believing. There's, there's two primarily, primary genealogical lines or of theology in the Bible. And we're constantly called to, to understand that and to have ears to hear that. And though we always go back to the one line of works, the devil's family, Jesus is always calling people over. Uh, and we'll never ever, like, like a kid, like can never lose that identity as a father or a mother's kid. It's the same with God. It'll never be lost. So this is the defense, I think this is what you might call like the defense of Christ against all discouragement we have, spiritual attack or sinful habits, and and even death. Um, He says, and this, this I think is like the deeper magic of the passage, this is how God speaks to us through it, he says, that you're my child. I've adopted you into my family through the blood payment of my son. I'm your new father, and my house is a house of life, grace, truth, and love. You don't have to fear anymore or look over your shoulder. I've paid it all forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this passage and all of its richness, in all of its darkness, and and all of its light, and all the beautiful contrasts that ultimately give way to the one that it was all written for, uh, who is Christ and him crucified. Uh, Thank you, God, for coming into the world to save us, for paying a blood payment for adoption, for suffering and experiencing want uh, and, um, and torture and darkness for us on the cross um, so that you might supplant us out of the devil's family into yours. Um, God, I pray that the idea of union with Christ too, would, whether that's a new concept for us here or an old one or somewhere in between, that that would be a sweet thing. It would, it would uh, be something that we want and believe in and rest in, that it would explain our days better than a moralistic view of self and of reality and of the gospel. Um, but thank you that, Jesus, you call yourself a bridegroom, that you replaced the law and the commandments with yourself. There's only one mediator. It's just you on a bloody cross, not the law anymore, not the commandments, not a list of do's and don'ts that are never perfectly keepable. Um, but you wed yourself to us. The, the law is given way to a marriage. Romans 7 says, Uh, and our new reality is to think in wedding terms now, forever, never to be changed. Uh, You love us that much, and we thank you for that. Uh, In Christ we pray, amen.